Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. So in the Four Noble Truths, which is the foundations of the Buddhist teaching known as the Dharma, um, Buddha notes that it's not the painful events in life that cause the bulk of our suffering, not the losses, the breakups, the, uh, the setbacks in careers, the frustrations and, uh, and disappointments in our creative endeavors, but it's actually the way we react to these events that cause the bulk of our suffering. In other words, we resist. We try to deflect our attention away from the very natural, inevitable, emotional wounds of life. And we try to essentially bury or repress, suppress, push down, repress, keep out of awareness, uh, negative emotions associated with disappointing events. And again, it's not those disappointing events or even the primary emotions of sadness, anger, uh, fear, and so forth that cause our suffering. It's the attempts to suppress, to get rid of, to bury, to compartmentalize, to ward off these very natural emotional uh, responses, these affects that causes our suffering. The Buddha noted that there's three ways. One, we crave short-term pleasures. If you know anything about uh, neuropsychology, sources of dopamine. Uh, stimulants that make us feel good very quickly to distract our attention from any form of emotional pain. This it could be craving for intoxicants, alcohol, drugs, food, shopping, and so forth. A second form of resistance is craving for numbing checking out, getting lost in uh, a sort of uh, overly uh, just uh, literally uh, almost like a uh, uh, just becoming unaware of our experience. People can do that again also through intoxicants. They can numb out through television and social media and so forth. But the third is going to, the third form of our source of suffering in life is the topic of my talk. And it's uh, bhavana in Pali. And it's the compulsion to become, which is Buddhist lingo for self improve, mm -hmm. to try to become some kind of better version of oneself, to strive to attain some future uh, existence, some self-state, where miraculously all of our stress and anxiety, fears, are majestically alleviated, <coughs> and we live happily ever after. Why is it that um, this strive to get somewhere, to achieve, to acquire, to become, to, uh, to establish a new state is so deeply embedded in us. Well, of course, the first obvious answer is the market economy that we live in, where, no, where we are told through our entire lives, uh, saturated with uh, hegemonic messages that are endemic to all of the culture that we are uh, immersed in that uh, shower us with this belief that happiness, peace of mind, uh, well-being is not your right, 
it's not something that you deserve simply by being alive. It's something you have to achieve and acquire, essentially pay for. You have to buy for it. Buy for it? That doesn't make sense. You have to buy it. Um, another reason. Wonderful, famous clinical study by two Harvard psychologists, uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert, I wonder why I can remember the names of a clinical psychologist, but, but you know, <laughs> half of my friends, I can't remember their names at all. Um, anyway, so this study was one of the largest clinical studies, well over 2,000 people. It involved a smartphone app that would call people randomly during times of the day and simply ask them, what are you doing? And basically, what is your emotional state? Right? That's pretty much it. What are you doing and how do you feel about it? And I'll read you their conclusion. It's called, by the way, the study is called uh, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. So that should give you a clue. Human beings spend a lot of time thinking about what's not going on around them. Instead, contemplating events that happened in the past, might happen in the future, or probably will never happen at all. Mind-wandering appears to be the brain's default mode of operation. In other words, that's what we default to. When we're bored, when we don't have enough stimuli, when we are faced in situations where we, are, uh, we don't have a great deal of uh, background, uh, we default to thinking about things that are not happening in the present. It's a remarkable evolutionary achievement that comes with a significant emotional cost. In their study, they found that people were considerably unhappier while mind-wandering than when focusing on their current activity. Mind-wandering was generally the cause, not the consequent, but the cause of our unhappiness. They gave an example that you would more likely be happier getting root canal <laughs> than being lost in thought about what might happen to you in the future. A subsequent, a subsequent study called the Default Mode Network and Self-Referential Processes by 10 clinical neuropsychologists at 10 different universities concluded that this recently discovered default mode network is characterized by self-referential ideations, i.e. thinking about yourself, thinking about myself. Activity in the DM, DMN, the default mode network, is reduced during goal-directed or present-time focused tasks. That's another circuit that's called task positive. When we are focused on what we're doing, not lost in thought, people are significantly happier. The more we lose ourselves in an activity, the happier we are. Additionally, this study found that the more people spend time thinking about themselves in any speculative way, i.e., wondering about what might have happened in the future, how, they com how we compare to other people, what might happen to us in the future, the less we are capable of regulating the amygdala. That's the emotional fear and stress center of your brain. So the more we actually stay in the default mode network, the more stress, fear, and amplification of negative affects we experience. Most importantly, while we are lost in the DMN, which is essentially thinking about ourselves rather than focusing on the world around us, what's available to us right now, we are most likely to come to thoughts that revolve around an idea of I'm flawed, I'm lacking, and yes, I need to improve. I need to somehow achieve or become better. The Buddha in the Loka Sutta noted, the world burns afflicted by a disease, which is called self-centeredness. Self-fixation creates an obsession to change, to attain new states of being. Yet this drive only creates stress. The awakened abandon 
becoming. I abandon the strive to actually try to acquire, achieve, accomplish, amass something that will pull us into this imaginary state, a future state. The drive of self-improvement cannot be satiated. As we all know, we spend our lives in a, with a partial narrative that goes something along the lines of when I, when I graduate from school, when I move to Bushwick, Bridgewood, when I get a place that's affordable, when I get a job so I can pay my rent, when I can finally move out of that place in Ridgewood and get my Ridgewood and get my own apartment, when I can finally get some furniture, when I can finally get a life partner, when when I can finally save money for my future, when I can travel, when I retire. And that's the most hilarious because every study shows by Cochiopo, the great uh, clinical psychologist at the University of Chicago, that the most miserable people in the world are retirees. <laughs> so much of life is trying to get to a time in life where we'll be the most unhappy. <laughs> The more we strive to approve studies show, the more we engage the default mode network, which only means we are more stressed out and more likely to perceive ourselves as lacking. It becomes a feedback loop. Two, a damaged sense of self, generally stemming from early attachment wounds or uh, life traumas, which lead to insecurity, a fear of separation or a fear of interpersonal engulfment, enmeshment, are modulated by the right hemisphere of the brain. But self-improvement is almost invariably activating the left hemisphere, which is always seeking things like financial security, a better career, or a certain status items. In fact, I'll read you. I looked up what are the most common New Year's resolutions. <laughs> the most popular by far and away, 75% revolve around dieting to look thinner. The next 65% is exercising more. The next is losing a specific amount of weight again. So I don't know how they separated the first from the third. They did exactly the same. The fourth is to save more money. That's 32%. To learn a, a useful skill to help one's career, 26%. And then low down around 15% is to learn more from reading. And nobody actually makes a resolution about the actual uh, tools that will bring happiness and fulfillment in life. What are they? Be patient. <laughs> no matter how much we strive to improve, we'll be forever disappointed as we remain susceptible to disappointing change, loss, and mostly also reminders of our own mortality, all of which reactivate the default mode network. You noticed I said reminders of our own mortality. Why in the world would I bring up that happy topic? Well, there's a, uh, a very, uh, I think, uh, provocative, interesting theory in clinical, uh, actually uh, just a, uh, psychology today called terror management. <laughs> terror management is the theory that a core motivation for our endeavors is to distract us from remembering the fact that we're all going to die. And it seems that, guess what, self-improvement does very little to help with that reflection. No matter what we achieve, we're still stuck with that idea and it keeps coming back. 
Striving to attain a future state results in a belief, and this is what's, I think, uh, worth highlighting. It results in a belief that the present moment in our life, what we are living right now, what our life is like today, is somehow insufficient, that we're somehow lacking, that we're missing something, that we don't have right now what it takes to truly embrace our life, to relax, to enjoy what we've actually naturally amassed, to rejoice in our friendships and our interpersonal connections. For the Buddha, the spiritual path is not about changing oneself, but turning towards what is already available and present in us that we all have, that we're all born with as a natural byproduct of our psychobiological system that guides us to attach to others in a secure way. Every human being is born with a core drive to attach, to bond, to develop affiliations. We are a social species. Our entire emotional well-being hinges upon this drive to bond first with caregivers and then with other adults, with peers, with teachers, and so forth. Of course, this idea that the self-improvement regimes are not going to bring one happiness is particularly radical in a culture that is absolutely rampant with courses, self-help books, and ongoing messaging that we are somehow not taking our life seriously. The Dharma doesn't teach resolutions, it teaches intentions. What's the difference between a resolution and intention? Well, a resolution is a essentially a measurable, specific goal that is endemic to the, essentially the left hemisphere's approach <laughs> to life. Left hemisphere focuses attention and tries to solve survival by accumulating, by achieving, by amassing, by saving money, by in birds, the left hemisphere focuses the bird's attention on acquiring seeds and food and twigs to make a nest. The right hemisphere of all mammals is about attaining survival through connecting securely with others. It's the dominant hemisphere in the first three years of life. But after age four, consciousness migrates from the right, which is focused, um, am I safely connected with other people? Do I have a community? Am I bonded well? To the left hemisphere, where language and this goal to achieve status, acquire tools, acquire uh, information that sets us apart, becomes dominant. A resolution is about, again, things like, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to save $5,000. I want to go on, uh, I want to exercise a half an hour every day. It's measurable. It's a specific, narrow frame. And it solves virtually nothing of any import. An intention is not measurable. It's an inclination to essentially try to cultivate something that is already available. An inclination to essentially enact our pro-social affiliative concerns, our compassion, our harmlessness, our kindness, to nurture our friendships, our sobriety, our spiritual life. Rather than striving for resources, 
The greatest boost to life satisfaction clinical studies show, if you want to read the work of Jonathan Haidt, who's one of the, or Martin Seligman, the head of the Amer- who's the head of the American Psychoanalytic Society, or Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, the life satisfaction, well-being, baseline happiness is directly attributable not to attaining anything, but to the social bonds and the fabric of our interpersonal life. Social, in a study by Amati Meglioro and Zacharin called Social Relations and Life Satisfaction, found that social capital, which is the ability to sustain membership in, in a social network of friends or other social stress structures, is the primary dominant mediator of well-being and happiness. What did they find plays a minimal role in human well-being and happiness? Economic capital and cultural capital, i.e. the amount of wisdom or achievements that we can talk about. In a famous study by Daniel Kahneman, he found that once people rise above the poverty level, which for many is very, very difficult to acknowledge that. But when you rise above the poverty level, there's virtually no overlap between the more money one, one achieves and happiness, fulfillment, or even a reduction in stress and anxiety. On the other hand, Cochiopo once again found in a massive study the presence of loneliness in any five-year span of our lives is the greatest predictor of subsequent anxiety and depression. Holt Lundstedt, a meta-analysis of over 200 clinical studies with a half a million participants, found that lonely individuals are 50% more likely to die in any calendar year than those who have robust affiliations, a community. In this might sound like a strange focus, but the Buddha was all on, all about this. In the Sambodhi Sutta, he says to Ananda, if someone asks you what are the prerequisites for awakening, you should answer having admirable wise friends. In the Upada Sutta, when Ananda asked the Buddha, is it true that admirable wise friends is half of the spiritual path? The Buddha says, nonsense, it's the whole of the spiritual path. (coughs) When one has admirable friends, that is when one becomes possible of leading a spiritual life. In the Mita Sutta, the Friends Sutta, the Buddha tells us it is essential to cultivate wise friendships, people who will endure your pain, your difficult words, share their secrets with you, keep your secrets safe. When setbacks occur, they won't desert you, judge, or shame you. Interestingly, a great evolutionary psychologist, Robin Dunbar, noted from his studies that as we move further and further into marketplace economies, long work hours, uh, where our interactions are mediated by essentially social media rather than face-to-face contact, people try to solve the primary concern of life by finding one person, a relationship, to do all the work that actually a core group of a small core group of friends is supposed to do. In his studies, if you look around the world, ever since, especially since um, hunter-gatherers, which form the bulk of human history, we spend our lives in a small clan of five or six people that we would trust and depend upon for our well-being. And knowing that we had those robust affiliations would raise our serotonin levels, preventing mood plummets, raise dopamine, raise oxytocin, which is essentially the blissful state of bonding. Today, 
rather than have that small core group of what Dunbar calls B people, the five or six people that we can rely on, recent studies show that most people have only one or two people who know what's going on with them, the negative affects and feelings that they struggle with. That's plummeted in the last 50 years from five or six down to one or two. When setting intentions, it's essential to keep in mind that lasting happiness derives directly from our pro-social and creative actions. Creative is self-actualization, according to the work of Abraham Maslow, being able to express yourself in a unique way where you can turn suffering and feelings into something creative, whether it's gardening, drawing, music, art, whatever. But most fundamentally, it's nourishing community. So in the, the, uh, the refuges that we take, part of the 2,500-year-old ceremony that we'll be doing, in Buddhism, knowing the futility of trying to achieve happiness and well-being through the uh, essentially the culturally enshrined methods of money and career and acquisitions and travel and all those great things that don't actually provide us with lasting well-being, there are three reliable sources of comfort. The first is Buddha Nusati, which is the ability to sustain internally a positive sense of what a secure, loving relationship would look like with another human being. Buddha Nusati is essentially stems from, in early childhood, children who have secure base with caregivers who naturally are confident and naturally are easy to bond with and take are willing to explore and are confident have what's called object constancy an internal sense of there is someone or some figure that cares about me that is available that wants me to be happy that appreciates my developmental growth that is soothing when i have a setback can modulate or downregulate my affects can help me feel seen and a proximity of safety buddha nusati is the internal image of a secure caring figure it doesn't have to be any specific person the buddha is the model of what it could be but you don't have to it could be christ it could be any other spiritual figure, it could be, uh, what's her name? I don't remember her name. Um, Amma. It could be Amma. That's horrible. I've I been teaching her for 15 years. I, I can never remember her name. I come from, at times, a uh, family of naturally uninquisitive people. This is a true story. I grew up, uh, we had this this house and there was a tree growing through the house and I brought a girlfriend home one day to my family to have a meal and she said oh what kind of tree is that and my dad looked up at this tree that was growing through our fucking house and said I kid you not said that's a big tree. <laughs> my sister and I and my mother all nodded eagerly as if that would somehow all give us a pass. And the fact that no one had bothered to even know what tree it was. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that time. <clears throat> so Buddha Nusati, bearing in mind a uh, caring internal uh, figure that creates a sense of object constancy, a sense of a secure base. Dharma Nusati, we focus our attention away from the thoughts of the fault mode network. What's going on with me? How do I compare with other people? What's going to happen to me in the future? And instead, 
in the Dharma, we simply reflect on how all of our experience is universal. There is no personally specific experience in life. Everything we go through is not about ourselves. It's simply what happens in life. My favorite story about this, I'll have to make it very quick. Famous story in sobriety. Uh, in sobriety. In, a, they have these tapes that they used to pass around. I don't know what they pass around now because cassettes are long gone. But uh, this guy, uh, Earl H., who's the sponsor of Robert Downey Jr., somehow got that guy sober. Earl H. had an f- amazing life story. He had cancer when he was young. Uh, after he had a miracle cure, his family decided to celebrate by flying on a plane down to Mexico, having a holiday. The plane crashed. All of his family died. He alone remained alive, hanging upside down in the plane. Two days passed. At one point, uh, essentially, people came, robbed the bodies, and left, leaving him for dead. Eventually, the army came, and not discerning that he was alive, threw him in the back of a truck, He spent six months in a hospital in Mexico recovering from his wounds. And then when he got out, decided to promptly drink himself to death. Makes sense to me. Uh, He tried. He took every drug and drink available to him. And then uh, he failed. So he got sober. Years and years pass. He's living with this idea of why would, because he's a God-fearing person, I'm an atheist, but he believes in God, and he was like, why would God do this to me? I'm alone. Nobody will ever understand this pain, this experience I've been through. My life, no one will be able to relate to. So 15 years later, he's speaking at a meeting. When he says his name, a woman comes rushing up to the stage, weeping, (coughs) hugging him, Earl doesn't know what to make of it. Finally, when she catches her breath and is soothed by him, she says, you don't understand. I was in a plane crash. Everybody died. I was in a hospital. And I tried to kill myself and failed. So if there's somebody whose life experienced the same as Earl's, I personally guarantee you, Maybe not the very minute details of any of your setbacks and sufferings and stressors are, but, you know, might be have a particular nature to them, but nothing you've ever experienced is unique. And in that, when we reflect on that, the default mode network and our ability to get lost in self-referential thoughts switches <laughs> off. Sangha Nusati, reflecting on the connections with people we have in our life, reflecting on our community, our friendships, those people we can turn to. These are the three refuges that direct and incline us, that lead us towards true happiness and peace of mind. So knowing this, let's meditate a little. This is just going to be short. We're just going to reflect on the three refuges. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in your face. Make an ugly pinched face. Clench the jaw. And then breathe out really slowly through the mouth and soften all the muscles in your face. request to your eyes that they settle, that they not bounce around behind the closed eyelids. When the retinal muscles settle, then circuits that process visual information settle and become so much easier to relax. Trying to keep the corners of the mouth as spread apart and the jaw unclenched. When we're in 
the highest setting of the nervous system, social engage, homeostasis. Our emotions are expressed on our face and the setting of your face influences your state of being. So take a second full in-breath and lift the shoulders up and rotating them back and dropping the arms, keeping your chest open wide. What we're doing is two things at one time. One, in opening up the chest, you're keeping your body from the startled state, which is synonymous with hypervigilance. And two, you're engaging your vagal break, which slows down your heart rate, allows you to relax, lowers your blood pressure. And for our third breath, feel your belly expanding like a balloon as you breathe in through the nose. And when you reach the apex, breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly. And just for a little while, let's practice self-soothing. When you breathe into your belly, you're sending a message up through the insula to the right amygdala, other regions informing the brain that you're safe. When people are under duress, stress, they breathe rapidly, focusing on inhalations and they breathe into their chest. When we focus on long exhalations and we breathe into the belly, that's synonymous with an increase in serotonin, rest, digest, parasympathetic shifts.
So I'd like to invite you to use your imagination and visualize either entirely from creative impulse or maybe based on certain figures in your life yourself at a place, a situation recently or in the past when you felt disconnected, unsupported, unseen, unheard, and visualize yourself in this setting where that experience is associated with any setting you can imagine a, a room a situation with other people perhaps a time from childhood I'd like you to visualize someone, a figure who could be there and provide you with all of the support, attention, appreciation we seek to feel secure, connected, loved. A Buddha-like figure any figure any gender non-gender any age any characteristic but just what would it be like if in this situation you had with you someone you could see, appreciate, soothe, attend to you, someone who in no way sought to be anywhere else, someone capable of prioritizing you. Just hold that internal sense that feeling of what it's like to get the care and support we all need to flourish to be resilient. And now for Dharma Nusati, bring to mind an experience that was difficult struggle with someone, frustrating setback, family dynamic, tension in work or home, and as you bring to mind this experience, put aside the details Focus on the feeling. When we seek support from others, it's not the details that matter. It's simply having our state of being 
our primary emotions, our sadness, our suffering, our fear, our loneliness being known. And when we get to know those underlying core feelings, we realize that nothing is personal. Everyone knows loss, frustration, disappointment, setback, loss in <laughs> attachment figures. Everyone knows awkwardness, lack of confidence, Everyone knows feelings of being a fraud. Everyone knows anxiety. And lastly, Sangha Nusati, bring to mind individual or individuals that are available to you or people that you could bond with, seek to connect with. The true intentions to build happiness and well-being. Which relationships should we nurture which people have been there for us. If no one comes to mind, just visualize a place where we could connect. ceremony where we take the refuges that we've just reflected on. We're also going to take the, if you like, you don't have to, the five precepts. What are those? They're setting an intention to refrain from behaviors and actions that cause stress in our interpersonal relationships. Refraining from violence, from theft, from verbal abuse, from sexual misconduct, and from intoxication. Now, the last one, if you can drink safely, <coughs> congratulations. <laughs> if you can drink safely, that's fine. It simply means refraining from, so each person take a string and then pass on to others. And when you get your string, uh, tie three knots in it. One for the Buddha, or Buddha reflections on a secure figure. One for Dharma, reflections on the universal, universality of experience. And one for your community, for people you can rely on, turn to. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. Reflecting on one who shows me a secure path in life. Reflecting on one who shows me a secure path in life. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Dharma. 
A way of insight and strength. A way of insight and strength. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Sangha. Wise friends who offer support and encouragement. Wise friends who offer support and encouragement. For a second time I take refuge in the Buddha. For a second time I take refuge in the Buddha. For a second time I take refuge in the Dharma. For a second time I take refuge in the Dharma. For a, sec- for a second time I take refuge in the Sangha. Okay. A third time I take refuge in the Buddha. For a third time I take refuge in the Buddha. For a third time I take refuge in the Dharma. For a third time I take refuge in the Dharma. For a third time I take refuge in the Sangha. For a third time I take refuge in the Sangha. I observe the precept. Of abstaining from killing. Abstaining from killing. I observe the precept. Of abstaining from taking. Of abstaining from taking. That which is not freely given. That which is not freely given. I observe the precept. Of abstaining from causing harm. Through sexual misconduct. Through sexual misconduct. I observe the precept. Of abstaining from harmful speech. Abstaining from harmful speech. I observe the precept. Of abstaining from intoxication. From intoxication that causes carelessness. That causes carelessness. Congratulations, you're all married. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's 12 o'clock at this moment. <laughs>